you read along with me as we read through Matthew chapter 5? And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for the righteousness sake, excuse me, for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth, thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle, but put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light also shine before men, that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one title shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in the danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring the gift, thy gift, to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave it, leave thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, 
if thou shalt by no means come out of thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thence. For if it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. If hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery." Again, ye have heard it say, <clears throat> ye have heard it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by the head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Ye have heard it, <clears throat> ye have heard it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard it say, Ye have heard it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than the others? Do not even the publicans, also, the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Good morning. I'd like to introduce you to, you know, I, I was, um, that's how it began this past week. I was at a meeting on Monday. 
is meeting for some of our referees, an association meeting. And after the meeting, a friend of mine was introducing me to another young man. It's hard to believe. I still, I still find myself sometimes thinking how, you know, how old now I am. See, I'm, I'm, I'm 40 now. And this young man was 25, and I was doing the math. And if my math's right, that's 15 years younger than me. And that's, that's so hard to just think through. Um, this young man was from Belgium. And he's over here. He's been over here in the States now for about three years. And he's just getting into refereeing over here. And I was introduced to this young man. A few minutes later, as I was walking out the door, two other men stopped me and, and we had a conversation. These were two men that I had re- remembered seeing. They saw me work a game from last year. and These men were asking me about how this all works. How do you go about getting games? And they were just curious to find out how to do this. And so I was introducing them to some men who have helped me along the way. And we had a good conversation, a good talk about some of these things. And you know, in, in general, in the realm of, of refereeing, these, these men are very helpful to one another. They're willing to come alongside other men just getting started. Understanding, too, that each of them had a starting point. And I enjoyed the opportunity to speak with these younger officials. Encouraging them and, and introducing them to other folks who've helped me, but making them feel a part of the group. They ask questions, and it's good to talk through things, situations, scenarios, how to handle them. And you know, as I considered these things from this past Monday night, by the way, the, the, Lord, the Lord uses His Word, and, 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 and His Word tends to percolate in my mind all week as I'm living life. And some of you are saying... Yeah, but you're, 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 you're preaching. There's something happening on Sunday. You, you stand and you're preaching and that's... Now, I want to encourage you. You too know what the word is on a given Sunday. And I'd encourage you to be percolating the text in your own mind as you live life. It's such an important thing. So whether I'm going to a basketball meeting or going to a game, my hope is that I can bring the word of God onto the situation and allow the word of God to speak in the midst of my work. Perhaps some of you here can remember the time of your first visit here at Hope in Christ Church. Does anyone remember that first visit? Well, just about all of you, good, good. Perhaps you remember what that visit was like, the details of that first visit. Maybe you recall meeting someone and someone else introducing you to others in this church family. Maybe there were certain distinctives that came to mind. Certain things that when you were here, you recognized these things are different. I hope and I pray that your experience here in worshiping the Lord was a positive experience. The fact that you're still here says something. Here of late, the elders have been meeting with several of the families and, and talking to several of the families who've been attending here at Hope in Christ. 
And I just thought it important just to say this as we're talking about this and, 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 and hang with me because this does tie into what we're talking about. But the idea as we meet together with families is not to interrogate, nor is it singling out any one of you as though you have a problem and we need to talk to you about it. Okay? As I've thought about this text and thought about where we are as a church, there's an aspect here of introducing you to the church family. Some of you are sitting there thinking to yourself, but I've, I've been a part of the church family. Why do I need to have a sit down with the elders? You've been a part of the church family, perhaps. But up to this point, there have not been any official introductions, if you will. For almost five years now, isn't it hard to believe, for those of you that have been here for the entire, December will mark five years. As a church, hope in Christ. Church of Wilkins. Right? Remember that? That's where we once were. For over almost five years now, people have attended. People have come and gone. People have moved. People have gathered together for worship. People have enjoyed certain things about this particular church family. They like the fact that families are together. When we worship, they like that perhaps modesty is upheld here in the body. They like perhaps that there's a common bond of those who are educating in the home. They like the idea of fathers leading in the homes. And you could continue expounding the list of things people liked as they visited. Maybe you could add to that list. But you know, the, the Lord, Lord's dealt with me on, on this particular issue. At the time, is now to put forward an introduction to each one regarding the church life called for. Not church life according to Steve. Not church life according to the elders. Church life called for in the scriptures. That's the desire here. Let me introduce you to what the Lord has in store for you as a part of this local assembly. Those things you liked about the church, not necessarily bad things. Praise the Lord. There's some good things. There's some good things. But let me introduce you to the Lord's priorities for his church. This is his church. When we meet together and we have opportunity to hear your testimonies and, and how you arrived here at Hope in Christ, those are wonderful things for us to hear as we set out as elders to identify and guard the flock. Church life as it has been, that's not what we're introducing you to when we meet with you. We're not meeting to have you check a box saying yes, simply yes to hope in Christ. 
But it's our hope and it's our prayer that in this church there's hearing and there's doing going on. James chapter 1, 122. There's obedience to the commandments of the scriptures. And this obedience to the commandments of scripture, it's not burdensome. Hearts that are guarded diligently seven days a week, not just for three hours on a Sunday morning. So let me introduce you to church life according to the scriptures. Saying yes to Hope in Christ Church. If you said yes, or if you're thinking about saying yes, and attached to that yes is saying yes to Sunday church or Sunday modifications or Sunday teaching or Sunday attendance. Let me be clear. Let me introduce you to the church life according to this word. The church I read about in the scripture. Prioritize the things of the Lord. Not just on the Lord's day. But each day of the week, each hour of the day, the things of the Lord did not get pushed to the side when other opportunities came up. The joy of being together. I say that with a smile on my face. The joy of being together. Growing together. Sharpening one another from the word. Submitting oneself to the authority of Jesus Christ. Speaking often of Jesus. This is the church life I'd like to introduce you to. Now some of you are saying, what does all this have to do with the text? I believe it has a lot to do with the text. The context of this sermon comes under the umbrella of Jewish religion. Up to this point, much of Judaism has communicated a particular message. Judaism has welcomed people to a way of doing things, a list of things one must do, sacrifices to tend to, prayer meetings to attend, mandatory feasts each year, dietary restrictions, the list could go on and on and on and on. In the midst of all these religious trappings, Jesus comes down to earth. And in Matthew chapter 5, he begins to speak some weighty words. The text says, verse 2, chapter 5, Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, that phrase, he opened his mouth, seems kind of like an odd phrase, doesn't it? I mean, if you're going to teach somebody, it seems kind of obvious you're going to open your mouth. Why? It's kind of redundant. He opened his mouth and he taught them. The idea here is that what's coming, when the text says he opened his mouth, that's code for what's about to come is authoritative. And when you get to the end of the sermon, you see it is just that, authoritative. They were amazed at his teaching because he spoke as one with what? Authority. So these words here, he opened his mouth and taught them. The king is about to teach. Jesus is essentially saying, let me introduce you to what it means to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. Let me introduce you to the kingdom standards for a child of the king. You've been living in a religious environment 
but I'd like to introduce you to what it means to live in me, to live in Christ, to practice righteousness, to walk in joyful obedience to the truth found in my word, the truth embodied in me. So, open up your Bibles, if they're not already open, and let's get ready to hear and receive the introduction to kingdom living as Christ himself has spoken. It's an introduction to something different. Now, it's true, those gathered here aren't living in the context necessarily of a Jewish environment like those in the first century. But the life that Christ is pointing to in this text is different than what has been. Let's have ears to hear and say yes to the things Jesus holds up for a child of the king to walk in. Matthew 5, 2 and 3. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first word out of his mouth would have struck a chord with his listeners. Blessed. Blessed. It's the word that we get these first few verses in Matthew 5 referred to them as the Beatitudes. Sometimes they're referred to as makarisms from the Greek word makarios, blessed. The word would have resonated as something different. The word wasn't typically associated with human beings per se, to hear a blessing, a declaration of inner joy upon those who listen and walk according to the king. This was something worth listening to. Writer helps us understand as well, and he's to be blessed, has in mind to be approved or to find approval. And since, he says, this is God's universe, there can be no higher blessing than to be approved by God. We must ask ourselves whose blessing we diligently seek. Does God's blessing mean more to you than the approval of loved ones, no matter how cherished, or of colleagues, no matter how influential? Whose blessing, church, are you seeking? Let's remember here too that the disciples are the primary audience and yet the cause for such a teaching seems to be the great multitudes, right? The end of chapter 4. Great multitudes followed him in chapter 5 verse 1, seeing the multitudes. So the prompting for the teaching perhaps is the great multitudes. It come from all around Galilee, Judea, across the Jordan, Syria, Multitudes were coming to hear what Jesus had to say. And perhaps they didn't fully understand what they might hear. But now, having gathered at the mountain, Jesus having taken his seat to teach, they're hearing the message of the king. They're invited in as well to kingdom life. The invitation 
goes out to the multitude as well. Let me introduce you to what it means to be a child of the king. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The multitudes have gathered. Jesus opens his mouth to teach. And what's the first thing out of his mouth? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Huh? Think about that for just a moment. The king has a great multitude that he's teaching. The first thing he talks about, the first thing right out of the gate, blessed are the poor in spirit. See, as you read these Beatitudes, the tendency is to be attracted to the reward or the result, isn't it? To turn aside from the attitude called for, perhaps. I like the reward or the, or the, the result. You like the idea of possessing the kingdom of heaven, but the poor in spirit part. I'm not real sure about that. Why does Jesus reserve a blessing for these folks? What is it about the poor in spirit? Why, why does Jesus begin right here? Being poor in spirit describes an attitude, church, which is necessary for kingdom living. A writer describes it as a beggar, desperately ashamed, even to allow his identity to be known. It's not just poor, it's begging poor. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one I will look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Psalm 51, that psalm of repentance of David. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. One writer speaking of this says that the Jews looked upon wealth being one of the chief elements of worldly prosperity as sure proof that its possessor was the object of God's favor. And in like manner, they no doubt supposed that in the Messiah's kingdom, the rich, the better class, would enjoy the highest privileges. In striking opposition to these expectations, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit, church, is realizing that you're bankrupt in spirit. It's a realization that you cannot do a thing apart from the power of Christ operating in you. It's that whole John 15 verse 5. Apart from abiding in the vine of Christ, 
The text there in John 15 says you can do what? Nothing. Poor in spirit, I believe, is, a, is an attitude that we see expressed by John the Baptist. Chapter 3, verse 27 and 30 and 31. He says a man cannot, can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Speaking of Jesus, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. See, poor in spirit is, is a foundational attitude of a child of the king. It's a realization that, that I am a beggar and I'm not in control. All this stuff that I have, it's not mine. Being poor in spirit is characteristic of the one who enters the kingdom. Matthew 8, verse 20, Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You see, Jesus himself in his own life chose to live a life characterized by being poor in the spirit. Poor also in the sense of the world's goods. Jesus chose that way. We see at the end of chapter 4 and 18 through 22, even his own disciples, they, they left their nets, left their father in the boat, and they followed Jesus. We also see example in the scripture of one who chose not to live this way, Matthew 19. Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. We see examples of both in the scripture. One who is poor in spirit relies on Jesus for all things and receives his word as marching orders from the king. Remember those words? What he says we will do. Where he sends we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. That's the kind of life that we're talking about. Poor in spirit. A realization, I can't do this. I can't do this. But through Christ, I can do all things. Right? Philippians 4, idea. Paul had it right. Those who are poor in spirit are grateful for their salvation. They're grateful for their salvation. Because they realize, were it not for Christ, were it not for the blood that draw, that, that I was once far away, right? Ephesians 2.13 has drawn me near through the blood of Jesus. Out of all the people on planet earth, we ought to be the most grateful people walking around. Because of the salvation that's been given to us through Jesus Christ. The poor in spirit walk daily in a spirit of gratitude for all that Jesus has done. They recall often that they were once, the, the beginning of Ephesians 2, they were once dead in their transgressions and sins. And they realize that it's only by grace that they enter only by grace that they stand. 
One writer spoke of Jesus' whole way of life and how a conscious identification with the poor and this whole Old Testament concept of poverty in itself, in the way Jesus lived his life, it was an act of loving compassion. And at the same time, it was a life which deliberately chose to cast itself on the care of the Father. But in doing so, Jesus was also putting to the test the people of Israel. By being confronted by Jesus in this way, the responsiveness of Israel faced a supreme test. And I got to thinking about that. Do you, do you find yourself having a hard time relating to this Jesus in the scriptures because of his association with the poor? Is that hard for you? Do you find yourself wishing he would have come another way? Why is that, perhaps? Does it have anything to do with a prideful spirit? Does it have anything to do with perhaps being ashamed of that kind of life that he lived? Does it have anything to do with wanting his life to be something a little bit different than what it was so that you could... You can enjoy sharing his story more, perhaps, with other people and talk about all these wonderful things and his position and his power and his authority. He wasn't that kind of person, was he? Not, not glamorous, not what we call dynamic, per se. I would venture that if you are ashamed of the life he associated himself with, while here on earth, you might also be ashamed to speak of his name. Luke 9, 26, Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory, and his fathers, and of the holy angels. I'd like for you to consider just for a moment the form of the Beatitudes, how they all begin with a blessing. This would have been familiar. This, this aspect would have been familiar to his Jewish audience. The Psalms are filled with such words. Psalm 1, verse 1, blessed is the man, right? Psalm 2, verse 12, blessed are those who put their trust in him. Psalm 32, blessed is he who tra whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Psalm 40, verse 4, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Psalm 65, verse 4, blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you. However, when you look at Psalm 41, verse 1, blessed is he who considers or longs for the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. You contrast that with Matthew 5, verse 3, which says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those are different, different understandings. Psalm 41, 1, blessed is he who considers or longs for the poor. Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. I believe this would have landed on many ears as one writer turned it. Strange doctrine indeed. This would have been strange, odd. The poor in spirit? As you consider Matthew 5 verse 3, it's good to consider additional teaching that has been going on. If you look at the end of chapter 4, 4 verse 23, it speaks of him going about Galilee teaching 
preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness. Perhaps his disciples had heard some of his teaching already. The great multitudes may have been hearing this for the first time. If Jesus was trying to connect with his crowd, if Jesus was trying to build a bridge with his crowd, if Jesus was trying to be cutting edge with his crowd, his first time visitors to the mountain, why would he begin his teaching with words such as, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I believe this is instructive today for the church. The word is intended primarily for the believer in Christ. Yet the invite is out there for the multitudes to come and hear as well, right? When they come and hear, though, the message is not catered to rouse their attention. It's not delivered differently to scratch their preloaded itches. It's not intended to serve as a carrot for getting them to come back next week. Not coated with entertainment attachments. As though this might be the only way to get their attention if we just entertain them for a moment. Jesus preached the message of the kingdom. He didn't shy away from the message of the kingdom. He spoke the truth. He spoke the very thing needed for one to live as a child of the king. No, but, but Jesus, don't you know that there's a better way to reach the multitudes? Don't you know that, that preaching about those who are poor in spirit, that's not going to keep their attention, Jesus. That's not going to draw big numbers. Jesus sits down to teach and he proceeds to deliver a kingdom message. Let me introduce you to what it means to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. The result of one being poor in spirit is this. The text says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Present tense. I'm glad Jesus puts that in the present tense. Present context. We typically think of the kingdom of heaven as future, which no doubt kingdom of heaven finds its culmination in the future. But the kingdom of heaven is also a very present idea as well. This idea of the rule and reign of Christ, not solely reserved to some point in the future, but is being worked out even now in and through the lives of all who operate as Christ's followers. You might be sitting here wondering how you arrive at being poor in the spirit. There are two scriptures I'd like to share with you. There are others, but I share two with you this morning. And in the parable in, in Luke chapter 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector, you remember that? The, the tax collector, standing afar off, text says, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. How do we arrive at being poor in spirit? Go to God, ask God, 
talk to God, fall before Him. Or Romans 13, 14, perhaps, would be another good scripture to consider. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Make no provision for the flesh. How are you going to recognize if you're poor in the spirit? How does it get translated into your life? Hebrews 12 verse 2 talks about your eyes being fixed on Christ. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, right? Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. See, those things of the world look dim. They start to look dim when all we're fixed on is Christ. Luke 18 also shares the story of that persistent widow How else does this poor in spirit get translated into your life? Your praying will be truly without ceasing. Because if you come to the Lord poor in spirit as that of a beggar, what does a beggar do? Begs, asks. That's what he does. Persistent prayer. A third way this can get translated is just a reliance, a total dependence upon Christ and his word for all things. You realize as the psalm, song, song talks about, Jesus is all the world to me. My life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him I would fall. Is that you? Or do you operate from the standpoint of, I'm doing just fine standing on my own? Intellectually, we say yes to a lot of these things. Operationally, how do we translate it? That's where we're going here. That's what we're talking about here. Understanding that Colossians 2, 9 and 10 idea of you being in Christ, you are complete in Him. Let me introduce you to the kingdom, Jesus says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning is typically associated with sadness or grief. Grief over the loss of a loved one. We associate mourning oftentimes with a funeral or the passing of a loved one. And while it is appropriate to mourn during such times, the text, I believe, would take us by the hand and show us another view of this word, mourn. Coming right on the heels of poor in spirit, those who mourn have been termed by one writer as the emotional counterpart of poor in spirit. The Bible describes two kinds of mourning. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, right? 
For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Is the promise right here in Matthew 5 verse 4. Is the promise of Christ's comfort available to all who mourn the loss of a loved one? Is that what Jesus is getting at? I believe Jesus is pointing the children of the king toward their sins. As a starting point of those who mourn, I believe the child of the king is to inspect sin in his own life. Does sin bother you? Do you mourn over the sin that so easily entangles? Hebrews chapter 12. Does the fact that it so easily entangles you bother you like it does me? It bothers me. That it so easily entangles me. Do you mourn over the fact that you do the very things that you do not want to do? That whole idea of Romans 7. Writer says this morning is a personal grief over sin. This is the morning experienced by a man who begins to recognize the blackness of his sin the more he is exposed to the purity of God. Psalm 32, 1 and 2 says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. Deceit, contrast that with Proverbs 28, 13. He who covers his sins will not prosper. He who covers his sins will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And he alone is the only one able to cleanse us from our unrighteousness, church. The promise here is to comfort those who mourn. Only the believer in Jesus mourns in this manner. For only the believer in Jesus is enabled by the Spirit of Christ within him to see just how vile, how ugly, how wretched his sin is. Those who operate without the Spirit in them are not bothered by sin. Sin is a fine companion. Sin is a partner in the path of life. For those without the spirit of Christ in them. I like what one writer said. He says nobody ever came into the kingdom. Who did not mourn over his own sinfulness. Have you mourned over that? Oh I surely hope that as part of the discussion. As part of an understanding of who Jesus is. A part of understanding a part of that salvation discussion, a large, let me say it this way, a large part of that salvation discussion should involve that three-letter word, S-I-N. Because it's that S-I-N that has separated us 
from the Lord. See the tendency. Even visible, it's visible, you can see it. Even visible, the tendency within the visible Christian community is to run after pleasurable pursuits. Entertainment. Those things that make us happy. You know, back in the day, there was a game. I bring it up in light of what I just said. Describes the objective of many today, I believe. The game was titled Trivial Pursuit. Anybody ever play it? Raise your hand. Go ahead. I did. I did. I played it. Okay. Many of us here, probably, most, not all of us have played that game or at least know about it. And perhaps some of you enjoyed the challenge of trying to master and answer all the questions in the deck. And you had your favorite categories. You had geography, remember? It was, was blue. Entertainment was pink. History was yellow. Arts and leisure was brown. Science and nature was green. And then sports and leisure was orange. Right? Remember that? You had your little pie that you'd move around the board. The game is right about one thing. To play is to be about a trivial pursuit. It's a great title for the game. How is it that such a game can consume us? Is a child of the king to be trivial in his pursuits? I'll ask that one more time. Is a child of the king to be trivial in his pursuits? Isn't a child of the king to keep his heart with all diligence. We talked about that last week. Proverbs 4.23. Would a pursuit of trivial things qualify as obedience to the king of kings? So what? Who starred in a 1950s movie? So what? So what? Who invented the game Rugby. So what? Who married so-and-so in Hollywood? Why should a child of the king be in the know about such trivial facts? It's a sad commentary when the children of the king are better at trivial pursuit than knowing what's inside the pages of the scriptures. You can quote movie lines. You can quote lyrics from songs from days gone by. But you have no idea what the word of God says. And you call yourself a child of the king. You see, the mentality today is is to pursue a life apart from holiness. There's only a pro- there's a problem with that. The Bible says, without holiness, no one can what? See God. That's part of what it means to be a child of the king. That's part of kingdom living. To erase it means you are just 
you're going to do it this way. I know what that says, but boy, I really like doing this over here. Church. He's introducing us to kingdom living. This is what it means. This is what kingdom living is about. The mentality today is to pursue that life that just make me feel good about myself. I've said it before, I'll say it again. It makes me ill to see bookstores lined with shelves of books on self-help. Self-help slash psychology slash whatever. Those books that are intended just to make you feel good. Just make you feel good. Just want to make you feel happy. If you're here today and you've been on this trivial pursuit of life, I'd like you to consider what you're doing. I'd like for you to consider the message you're sending. The message you're sending to those in your family, those you work with, those who are gathered here in this church family. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The text doesn't say, blessed are those who pursue comfort and pleasures. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The comfort is the reward. It's the result of one who mourns over sin. The writer says some Christians spend, and this is so true, some Christians spend all their lives trying to find happiness. They get some counseling and read a good book on it. When what they really need to do is mourn their own sin. Subjects of the kingdom, children of the king, are characterized by constant confession of sin. Why is it that we tend to, our, our, our default seems to be, even as a believer, our default seems to be, if I've got something going on in my life, I need to go find, I need to go find somebody to write me a prescription for just, it'll get better. How about go to the word, go to the Lord, Confess that sin, whatever it may be. There's promise. He's faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Why is it that we don't go to the very source he's called us to go to? Why is it as a child of the king we would desire to go anywhere else? Blessed are those who mourn they shall be comforted. Now, what does the comfort look like for those who mourn? Where does that comfort come from? Let me give you five things here. These, I didn't make these up. These are all in the scripture. Okay? First of all, we see God. God the comforter. Turn to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. Chapter 1. Begin reading verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Do you realize that we have a God of all comfort? 
who comforts us in all our tribulation. Why? For what purpose? That we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Oh, that's a beautiful text. What about Romans 15, verse 5? Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. So we have God, the comforter. We also have Christ, the comforter. John's gospel, as Jesus is explaining and talking about the spirit to come in chapter 16, excuse me, chapter 14, verse 16. Jesus says, I will pray the Father and he will give you, here's the key word, he will give you another helper or another comforter, another. Jesus himself was a comforter, was he not? While he was here, did he not comfort people? Wasn't that not part of his ministry? Comforting the people. We also have the Holy Spirit as a comforter. John 14, verse 26. But the helper, or the comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper or the comforter will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Turn back to Romans. In Romans chapter 15, we see that the word serves as a comforter. We have God, we have Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit, we have the word For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Oh, but we're not done. Let me give you one more. The whole idea of the one another's. And we could use 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the passage we already read. God comforts us. Why? That we might then comfort one another but also give you another passage to consider and that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18, the last verse of chapter 4. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. What words? In context. The words of the return of Jesus Christ. Those who mourn their sin can be assured of comfort. Let's be clear. Mourning your sin is not wallowing in it. Not waiting around, wallowing in your sin. That's not what we're talking about. Feeling sorry for yourself. No. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Confessing, confessing the idea of saying the same thing that God would say about it, to agree with him that you sinned. Understanding that Christ is the only one who can cleanse you from your unrighteousness. This morning, sin at an individual level is but one aspect here. There's also the idea of mourning sin in perhaps where you live or around where you live. You have neighbors who are lost, you know, people who are lost. Do you mourn the sins of those around you? 
those who are lost? Do you have that, that, that heart's desire that Paul had in Romans 10 verse 1? My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Or even expanding that whole idea of mourning sin to that of our nation. Does sin bother us? Poor in spirit, mourning. Church, not many people clamoring to get in line for this kind of life. And yet the king of kings says, let me introduce you to kingdom living. Here's what it looks like. Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Who are the meek? Probably have heard the definition that the meek are these people who exhibit strength under control. Another definition, a controlled desire to see others' interests advance ahead of their own. A meek person desires to see others' interests advance ahead of their own. What examples do we have in the scripture of meekness? We see in the life of Abraham in Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13. Verses 8 and 9. Remember Abram and Lot? There was strife. Remember that? They're going to, they're going to separate. Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen. For we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. If you go to the right, then I'll go to the left. Great example right there. Someone else's interest is more important than his own. Or what about Moses himself? In terms of how Moses is described in the scripture. We see in in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3 says the man Moses was very humble or meek more than all men who were on the face of the earth. That describes Moses. Or what about in Genesis chapter 45? In Genesis chapter 45, Joseph is revealing himself to his brothers. Joseph says in verse 4, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land. And there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. You know, I read this story sometimes and I think about what I would have done. Had my own relative, my own brother, sold me into slavery. And that's what happened.
Verse 10, he says, You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. Therefore, I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty. For there are still five years of famine. And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that have been seen. You shall hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. That's a meek man right there, church. What about Samuel? Chapter 24. 1 Samuel chapter 24. We see a little power under control exhibited in the life of David when he and his men find Saul in the cave. Remember that story? And his men are like, Oh, the Lord has delivered him into your hand. Now's the time. Take his life. He doesn't do that. How could I do such a thing? He says. Lord forbid me that I should do this thing to my master. The Lord's anointed to stretch out my hand against him. Seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. That's an amazing, amazing line from a man who is being sought after to be killed by this guy. That's power and strength under control. And that power and strength under control has been given to him by the Lord God. In his flesh, he would have done something quite different, church. And notice this too, by the way. Just a little instructive note for for young people in particular. He's not easily swayed, even though parts of his team, parts of his army wanted to take his life. David didn't say, oh, oh yeah, oh, yeah, oh, and the mob mentality. Stand firm on what you know to be true. Stand firm on what you know to be right. Stand firm on this word. 2 Samuel, if you go just a little bit, 2 Samuel, chapter 16. This, this story, this is an amazing example of, of someone who's meek. And again, once again, it's David. He's being flushed out of, the, of, of, of town in terms of being king. You remember this guy named Shammai? He was a, uh, of the house of Saul. Look at verse 6. He threw stones at David and all the servants of David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and his left. Shammai said, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have, you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered, you, delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. It's kind of like, yeah, you know, he's, he's throwing rocks at the guy, at David. Cursing at him. Abishai, one of David's men, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. I love that text. The king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zerah? Let him curse because the Lord has said to him, curse David. Verse 13, David and his men, as they went along, Shammai went along the hillside opposite him. Think about this. Picture it. Cursed as he went, threw stones at him and kicked up dust. Now the king and all the people who were with him became weary. I think I'd be weary too. The guy's constantly doing that as they're walking along. An example of power and strength under control. As the king, he could have very well 
taking the leash off Abishai. Go get him. But he doesn't do that. We see, going to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 11. The end of chapter 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, meek in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We need to also understand meekness is a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. Right? Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or meekness. Gentleness, meekness, some of your translations have. Okay, so another indicator, this is another indicator then, that the Sermon on the Mount is targeting the children of the King. What's called for here is something the Spirit gives. This is not something someone can just manufacture. So when you see the word meek, some, some words that could be associated with that, some perhaps from time to time interchangeable words, words like lowly, words like tenderhearted, words like humble, mild, gentle, submissive. Now on the other end, the world tends to hold up, you know, high position folks, strong will, self-assertive, strong, aggressive. And if you're not one of those, then we'll, we'll look for someone else. Thank you. You know, as I was, as I was studying this week, this one phrase came, came to my attention and, and it's one of those things that I came across. I, just, I, was, I was arrested. I had to stop and really consider this. It said a meek person never gets angry about what's done to him. That one, that one hurt. Because I know there are times in my life, more times probably than not, where things happen and I either get angry or I get frustrated or I get upset or, or we could fill in a, a lot of different emotions perhaps that would come. And I think about David walking along with his men and opposite him on the road on the cliff, there's this guy Shammai and he's just pelting them with dirt clods. I would imagine a couple of them hit David right in his head. I wouldn't like that. I know you probably wouldn't like it either. Do, do, we, do we tend to get angry over little things, things that bother us? Because what I read in the scripture, what I read about this king that we serve, is that in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, says that, that he was reviled. And it gives us his response to people reviling him. He reviled not. When he suffered, what did he do? He did not threaten. If you don't stop throwing dirt at me. No, that wasn't his response. His response was, 1 Peter 2.23, he committed himself to him who judges righteously. You know, I, find, I, I do find it hard. And, and as you... Perhaps process this and consider this in your own life the rest of this week. Getting, getting angry 
getting frustrated, getting disappointed about something done to me. When something doesn't go my way, when someone says something, someone does something, a situation comes up where something isn't carried out according to my liking. And I allow it to affect me negatively. When that driver pulls over in front of you while he's texting. Right? All that's within you wants to let out an emphatic beep. Emphatic beep. Now, there's nothing wrong with just a little beep to let him know there's danger. Right? A little one is okay. But the problem is, when we start talking out loud, no one else is in the car with us, and making hand gestures, when, when the body language shouts a clear disapproval message, when we, I mean, how many times have you come to an intersection, and it's a four-way stop, and you're sitting there, and someone else, you see these two people, and they're like going. And they do it like three or four times. And then the one person finally goes, and the other person's going like this. You know, he's like, come on. You know, and the facial expression, everything, it speaks volumes. I don't know what they're saying, but they look angry. You look angry, too, when you do that. I look angry when I do that. Whatever that face might be. We've allowed another driver to dictate the response of our heart. Why do we do this? One writer says, I, I, each man tends to assume, oftentimes I believe without thinking, that he is at the center of the universe. A man, a meek man that is, sees himself and all, under, all others under God. He sees himself and all others under God. He is not to think more highly of himself than he ought. Right, Romans 12? And therefore he's able to relate well to others. Besides the fact that meekness falls under the umbrella of the Holy Spirit, why is meekness necessary in the life of one who lives here as a child of the king? What, what does meekness have to do with kingdom living? Let me give you two. First of all, James chapter 1, verse 21. It's connected, church, with your salvation. James says, therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness. The implanted word, which is able to save your soul. Or one that we read not too long ago. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. It's connected with your witness to the world. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. With meekness and fear. That's how it's to be handled. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If you turn with me for just a moment to Psalm 37. The psalmist here speaks of two kinds of people. Those who trust the Lord, verse 5. Those who wait on the Lord, the meek, verse 11. The righteous, verse 17. Those blessed by him, verse 22. The blameless and upright man, verse 37. Those kind of people all fit into one category. And they contrast with people who are evildoers, verse 9. The wicked, verse 10. Enemies of the Lord, verse 20. Those cursed by him, verse 22. Transgressors, verse 38. The psalmist 
also has confidence in what God is going to do. That is, cut off the wicked and uphold the righteous. The wicked shall perish, the upright's inheritance, verse 18. The upright's inheritance shall be forever. To inherit is to receive something as your allotted portion. What then is the allotted portion of the meek person? I was reminded of of the word in, in Hebrews chapter 11. 13 and 14, verse 16. These all died in faith, talking about these, this gallery of, faith, of the faithful, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. Verse 16. But now they desire a better that is, a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The meek shall inherit the earth or the land. If you're a child of the king, will the earth or land spoken of here be something here, right here, around us, a place on the map geographic-wise? Would it not be true that, that, the, that the earth, that the land spoken of is not of this world? As you see what the, these, these folks in Hebrews 11 that are talked about, these things that they lived for, these things that they looked ahead to that they couldn't see, but they held on in hope, in faith, as a citizen of heaven. Isn't there a homeland yet to come that we long for? As Hebrews 11 verse 10 says, the city which has its foundation, whose builder and maker is God. Psalm 37, 18 says, The Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. If meekness is a fruit of the Spirit, and the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance to come, in Ephesians 1, 13, 14, then it should come as no surprise that the meek shall inherit the earth. The Bible speaks, if we go to the end, Revelation. I was I was drawn here and I was I was looking here at Revelation and Revelation chapter twenty one. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's wonderful, right there. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, The tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse 7, he who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. Some characteristics, maybe some questions perhaps of those who are meek. Some questions for you to consider. Do you exhibit self-control? Do you get angry or react for selfish reasons? Do you respond humbly and obediently to what the word says? Or do you try to rationalize your disobedience? Do you receive criticism well? Do you give instruction 
with meekness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The king opens his mouth to teach his disciples. And the great multitudes who gathered from surrounding countries. Do you hear the refrain? Blessed. 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 He's going to say it a few more times before we're all done here. He's putting forth the kingdom message. Look look, look closely at the text. The kind of people who are blessed by the Lord. Not the kind of people that you might expect to see. Look also at the reward or the result of such attitudes described here in Matthew 5. Any of these that we talked about today you'd like to walk away from? Any of these not sound appealing? Kingdom of heaven? Receive comfort? Inherit the earth? We keep going here in the next couple weeks. I I don't believe there are going to be any of them that we're going to um, want to decline. Children of the king walk like the king and operate with kingdom attitudes. Children of the king take the king at his word and content themselves in what he's called for. They don't spend their days arguing, debating, or rationalizing what the king's already said. Imagine being present on the mountain as Jesus sits to teach. What you've just heard demands a response. Think about a church made up of subjects of the king who are poor in spirit. Think about a church made up of those who mourn over sin, their own sin, the sins of those around them, sins of the country. Remember the text when Jesus is is nearing his, his entry into Jerusalem and he is weeping over Jerusalem. Think about a church made up of those who practice meekness. Those who practice self-control. Those who, whose first response is committing himself, committing themselves to the one who judges righteously rather than retaliating when someone wrongs them. Church, the king's speaking this morning. In fact, for the next several weeks as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, if you have red letter edition, you see these are all red letters. He's going to be talking for quite a while. As you listen to his word, is there a longing to steward your life according to the path marked with the king's own blessing? You've gathered on the mountain. Over these next few weeks, we're going to be collectively within earshot of the king's message. And you come near to hear with certain expectations and presuppositions. The question is, will you draw near and will you hear with ears to hear? Or do you already come in with your own set prescribed idea and understanding of things? Will the king's message take root in your heart? Will you carry with you the king's message or continue to to promote your own messages in the days ahead? As a subject of the king, find out what the will of the king is and walk in that way. If necessary along the way, discard the old. Discard that which used to be. Take on what the king's message is. Embrace it with all your heart, for it is the king's good message. 
Once again, I'm reminded of the introduction and how Jesus essentially here, as he begins his teaching, is calling his disciples and calling the multitudes who have gathered as well to hear. Let me introduce you to what it means to be a child of the king. Let me introduce you to kingdom living. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for introducing us to this kingdom living. What it means to be a child of the king. The kind of attitudes, the foundational attitudes for being a child of yours. Oh, Lord, I pray that as we read your word, that it would be our heart's desire to walk in this way. And that, Lord, the things that are competing, the things that are obstructing currently, keeping us from doing this, Lord, I pray that perhaps even today, perhaps even this afternoon, this evening, we have a time where we can just sit down and come before you and put these things right out before you and lay them out, Lord. And Father, that you would help us to discern, help us to know what needs to go that we might be able to walk with you. I'm reminded of the word in 2 Timothy and how this is not just an exercise in fleeing certain things, certain habits, certain ways of doing things, but it's also pursuing. Oh Lord, may we pursue you. May we pursue the path of kingdom living. And whatever may be in the midst of that way, Lord, I pray that we would clear away the clutter Lord, speak to us, and I pray we would have ears to hear so that we might be able to discern what needs to go. May we walk in this way, Lord. May we encourage one another to do this. May we comfort one another along the way. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his example. Thank you that he was willing to lay down his life for us. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would see in Christ our ultimate example. That the king is not just delivering a message that sounds good. The king is delivering a message that characterized his very life. May we desire that very same thing. May we desire to be like this king. Oh, thank you, Father, for the word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.